Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Taha Lokandwala, Deputy Personal Finance Editor. And joining me today are Stuart Widdison, uh, Manager of the Edition Investment Trust, and Chris Dillow, Investors Chronicle's Economist. Morning, Stuart. Morning, Chris. How are we doing? Very well, thanks. How are you doing, Taha? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Chris, how are we doing? I'm fine. Thank you. An interesting week in terms of the news and markets. Interesting, but also because it's been politically driven in the UK, but there's been no massive reaction from markets, either in terms of equities or sterling. Uh, in fact, the probably the most notable thing this week is in the US, where the Federal Reserve had their latest meeting. And their statements uh, seem to appease investors, and the S&P 500 is up 4% um, over seven days. Chris, um, I'm, sure, I'm sure you were following this. What was it that actually Chairman Powell said that seemed to excite investors? Yeah, the thing that people have cottoned on to is his statement that uh, the Fed funds rate is just below its neutral level, where its neutral level is the one that's compatible with stable inflation and, and stable growth. Now, markets have interpreted that as a sign that rates might not have to rise as much as they previously thought. Um, but personally, I find that um, rather an exaggerated reaction. Um, the problem is that it looks as if wage inflation is rising. The economy is still growing strongly. And in that environment, it might well be that interest rates have to rise to just above their neutral level. So I'm not sure that Powell has said anything um, significantly different from what what the, what the Fed said said in September. So, so would that mean if um, if they start to go above their neutral level next year, as was previously anticipated, um, would that then start to imply that um, if the Fed is more worried about cooling down the economy, uh, so they're before kind of preempting a slowdown? Is that is that how you could interpret that? Um, yeah, I think I think the issue. Well, we do expect um, the U.S. economy to cool off a little next year. I mean, the, the, the Fed has told us that it expects that to happen and it, that it, it will raise interest rates slightly even as that happens. So signs of a cooling off in the economy aren't going to necessarily stop interest rates rising. Uh, I think the, the issue for, for equities here is to what extent have share prices been boosted by a reach for yield? Um, to what extent have investors jumped into equities? simply because of despair at getting such low returns on cash. Now, if that reach for yield has been very large, then even a small rise in interest rates could trigger quite a large switch from equities into cash. So it could be that uh, the stock market is unusually sensitive now to developments in interest rates. And you can read the market's rise uh, on Powell's otherwise quite innocuous comments as being a sign that this is indeed the case and that uh, interest rates matter more for equities now than they, they have in the past. Oh yeah, I suppose that makes sense. If they go up quickly, obviously they can uh, go down equally as quickly on uh, on reverse comments. So how does this tie into um, a very interesting article you wrote in this week's magazine uh, on the US yield curve and what that tells us about asset allocation and when we should... Um, kind of be allocating to equities. So how does that tie into that? So how does that feed into kind of Powell's statements and also what we now see as the, the future path for rates? Yeah. Um, the, is- the issue here is that markets are worried that if the Fed raises rates too much, then this might cause a recession. 
Now, recessions are obviously terrible news for equities. But the question is, can we forecast them in advance? And if you want to know what, whether we're going into recession or not, then economic forecasts are utterly useless. I mean, we know from research at the IMF that around the world, economic forecasters have almost always missed the recession. So we need some other thing to predict a recession or not. And the only indicator I know that's any good here is the shape of the U.S. yield curve. Um, well, you can measure this in, in a number of ways. The, the simplest version is the level of 10-year yields relative to the Fed funds rate. Now, if 10-year yields are above the Fed funds rate, which is normally the case, then this, leads, this predicts growth in the future. When the Fed funds rate goes above 10-year yields, when the yield curve inverts, this tends to lead to recession. And it's done so for the last four recessions at least. And we haven't had any um, false positive signals from the yield curve. So if the yield curve inverts, it leads to recession. If it doesn't invert, it doesn't lead to recession. Um, uh, uh, and this signal is, is, has been very strong in the past. And this suggests an asset allocation rule, which is that you should be um, quite heavily weighted in equities when the yield curve is positively sloping, but you should reduce your equity weighting when the yield curve um, becomes inverted. And you should be especially wary uh, of cyclical stocks when that happens, because, of course, these are hardest hit by, um, by, by recession. Does that count for the reverse as well? So then if the, if the yield curve is steep or, well, I suppose rising and steepening, that cyclical stocks will be a better place to be than perhaps less cyclical stocks and defensives and quality stocks? Yes, yes it does. But the, the relationship here is very simple and it's a, it's a binary one. It's, is the yield curve inverted or not? That's the question that matters. It's not the case that the more steeply upward slope in the yield curve is the stronger will the economy be and the better will be equity returns. And it's not the case that the more steeply inverted curve necessarily leads to deeper recessions. It's simply that it's, is the yield curve inverted or not that matters. Okay, cool. You know, the actual shape other than that doesn't have much predictive power. Okay, it's good to know. It's also interesting, obviously, um, I'm sure listeners are well aware paying attention to what the Federal Reserve is saying and doing is, is very important for this very connected global markets. Okay, moving on to the UK and where obviously, as I'm sure everyone is aware, Brexit is dominating the headlines. Uh, some interesting reports from the government and the Bank of England. Well, interesting or false, depending on which side of the debate you fall on, I suppose. Stuart, what do you, what do you think about the reports that came out this week? I suppose the Bank of England was the, the, the harshest and the, the most, well, again, worrying or the most ludicrous, again, depending on which side of the debate you fall. But. Uh, no, no, I think that's right. So uh, what Chris said, economic for- forecasters have missed all the last recessions. Um, the bank forecasts that post the uh, no votes, the UK would tail spin to recession. I think from memory it's been one of the fastest growing economies in Europe. So I think one can always take uh, forecasts with some pinch of salt. And I think um, from what I read about the analysis, quite a, quite a lot of the downside scenarios assume absolutely no upside whatsoever in terms of the benefits of, um, of the medium to long term of being able to set our own free trade policy. So, look, I think um, 
in reality, the, you know, the Bank of England is is politically involved, and and I suspect it's been asked to present a certain picture. Um, the only certainty is no one knows. Um, I was with a, a, a wealth manager client uh, of the trust the other day, uh, and I said, you know, how are you positioning yourself, and 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 uh, you know, how are you going to know manage your client's money over the next you know three six twelve months given the uncertainties and he said well look we're doing what we think is right for the long term and that's something i think we would we would agree with um we, we can indicate to our clients what we think how they think their money will behave in a no deal situation but again we don't know what no deal situation that might be if the current deal goes through and if effectively um the uk stays in the eu and i think that's that's really the only thing the investors can do i think um uh whatever forecasts you see are just bound to be wrong <laughs> Okay, Chris. What was your any initial thoughts on the the Bank of England paper? Yeah, I think Stuart's right. The the, the precise numbers are just silly. Um, we just cannot know um, the precise response to a no deal. It is plausible, very plausible, that there'll be short term disruption to supply chains, and that could cause a, a, a drop in output. How severe it'll be, we, we we can't say, and also we can't say what the political reaction to that would be. It might well have the government scurrying um, to do some sort of deal. Um, so, in a sense, um, the bank hasn't told us anything we didn't know already. And one thing that I think has been met with almost universal scepticism is the, the bank's warning that interest rates will rise in the event of a no-deal scenario. Most economists think that the opposite will be the case and that if you do see a severe disruption to output, that the bank will actually cut rates. And in fact, that's one reason why sterling would be so vulnerable in, in such a scenario. Plus, that these are scenarios we do not know which one will happen, and, and of course we don't know um, the precise consequences mm. of it. I, I think that's that's right, Chris. I, I read this morning that apparently Carney had said to the Brexit committee that interest rates were likely to fall a few weeks ago. So, yeah, it's definitely been mixed. It's, yeah, so um, the, the unreliable boyfriend coming back, I think. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps so. Um, Stuart, you run an investment trust that focuses on UK equities um, in the smaller space. Macroeconomics aside, is there what's the kind of impact um, of I suppose the scenarios we have in terms of No Deal and the deal that we have in front of us that could happen on? What's the impact for UK equities? Obviously, they've been hit quite hard with the uncertainty, and valuations are quite low. So, what do you what do you think might? Or what are you expecting to see? I suppose. Well, I think one can only look at what happened uh, after the referendum. Um, people initially thought that it would be bad for equities, and equities um, rose pretty um, after initial self. They they went on to perform pretty well, and I think a lot of it is company by company. Um, people look at the stock market as as the stock market, whereas actually it's a market of stocks. And you have to look at the impact of, of all the different scenarios on each of the individual com- companies and also where they earn their profits. Now, what we saw uh, in small companies post the uh, post the referendum um, result was that companies with overseas earnings actually went on to do particularly well because of the depreciation of sterling. Um, and the, the stocks then that were initially hit very, very hard, uh, more domestically focused stocks became so cheap after a while that people decided that they were materially underpriced and they started to correct. What's different this time is that, you know, the referendum was a shock. Um, In our perception that markets have been weakening, you know, for a few months now, um, and certainly there we tend to focus in small companies, um, 
actually the aggregate valuation metrics of small companies have have been sort of derating for a number of years now. And in fact, if you forget the UK market as as as, as um, some of the charts that we've put on a recent presentation show, the UK market in total in the the, the hundred and two fifty has been derating for for some time now. Um, I think people people are uncertain. I think the other impact on small companies, it's as much about what's happening for asset allocation as the underlying companies and, and sentiment. So in our, in our part of the market, the vast majority of money, despite the assets being less liquid, the vast majority of money that's run by fund managers is in open-ended funds in, in, in OICs, as some of your readers will know. And that money is on daily call. And if you get a slight sentiment change in the holders of those OICs, that can turn fund managers into to holders of stocks to actually for sellers of stocks. I don't think we've seen any appreciable elements of that yet, but if the sentiment changes over the next few weeks or months, that could have a disproportionate impact on markets over and above really what's going on in the underlying economy. Okay. And just on to the valuation point and the uncertainty, it's an interesting thing because I, I think you're right. I think what we have seen is there's, is the floor where people have come in and said, actually, no, now these companies are too cheap and uncertainty doesn't cost that much. But it hasn't it doesn't seem to have kind of triggered any M&A activity, uh, which is what you would expect at this point, I suppose, especially from larger companies picking up very well-valued smaller companies. Um, so what's do you think Brexit Uncertainty is putting that off, or is that are we just a bit early for that yet? I, th- I think there's uh, there are two answers depending on who the types of buyers are. If you're looking at uh, companies that private equity are interested in, um, my impression is the debt market, having been very, very generous uh, for lending to buyouts, is probably starting to become less generous. Lenders, in, in our, uh, from what we feel, are becoming a bit more cautious. Uh, P houses have raised a lot of money recently for funds. I think there's almost a record amount of unspent money. But from the contacts we have in private equity, they are cautious about valuations. If, if you remember... Um, if you look at the private equity trusts your colleagues cover, um, if you look at the carrying values, some of those are at all-time highs as well. So P is generally, in our experience, a seller rather than a buyer at the moment, which is another another signal to be wary about valuations. If you look at corporates, I think the interesting debate is whether or not US, particularly US and overseas buyers are interested in UK assets. Um, even in small companies, it's it's possible to find companies which – um, although they have their head office here and they have their quota list in the UK, actually they might drive 85 or 90% of their earnings from overseas. You know, and Quite often we find companies that are much more exposed to the US economy than the UK, despite the fact they're a UK-quoted company. Um, if you felt that US corporates and, and overseas corporates were conf- uh, confident about the future and had good financing in place, you would probably see them coming at some point. Corporate buyers tend to be slower than financial buyers. So if they do see an opportunity in, the, in UK quoted companies, it's probably next year rather than this. Okay, great. Thanks for that. Chris, so I want to talk to you about this week's portfolio clinic. Um, so listeners, you'll, you'll see it on the website and in the magazine. Quite an interesting one this week because, well, I'll start off with their their target ambition for returns, uh, which I think you, you called them on, uh, Chris. It was 8 to 10% a year they wanted to grow their SIP to make sure it could provide income for retirement in six years. 8 to 10%, Chris, that's, that's quite a lofty ambition, isn't it? It's far too lofty. Even in normal times, I would assume a real return on equities on average over the long run of only around 5%. Now, that's price appreciation plus dividends. It's incredibly difficult to get 8% per year um, over a long period unless you are investing in deeply underpriced assets. And I I don't think this reader is. And I'm not at all sure what 
that are deeply underpriced assets now. So 8 to 10% is way too optimistic. Yeah, I found it interesting, especially when um, the reader wanted to combine that 8 to 10% with uh, only accepting a 10% fall in their portfolio in a down market. One one thing they did have, and again, which you, you wrote about, was uh, quite a large emerging market exposure, but you, you seemed quite concerned about this in, in the article. Yeah, I really don't like the look of emerging markets right now. One thing I think one should look at carefully here is monetary growth in China. Now, we're going to get figures out in a couple of weeks' time, which are likely to confirm the trend of the last few months, which is for this to have slowed down very sharply. Um, Such growth is now at a four-year low. And historically, this has been quite a nice predictor of, of output growth in China, and especially of demand for commodities. So it is warning us of a slowdown in China by extension in the region. And it's warning us of declining commodity prices as well. And in fact, in the last few weeks, um, this, is, this is what we've seen. Okay. So, um, so, so, in... so this all goes badly, I think, for emerging market stocks and for mining stocks, which traditionally have been very highly correlated um, with emerging markets. And allied to this, You've got the chance that the Fed will be raising interest rates over the next 12 months. Historically, emerging markets are vulnerable when that happens. Um, Plus, of course, you've got the fact that um, emerging markets are, in in most cases, and certainly for the the aggregate markets, um, now, now got momentum against them. In the past, emerging markets have been strongly momentum driven, both on the upside and the downside. So in terms of, I suppose, the main question, I'm probably asking this for myself, given the, the state of my ISO at the moment, how do we know when emerging markets can can turn around? Is there, are there any signals that we can be looking for? I appreciate the, the, the kind of macroeconomic headwinds against emerging markets now are, are pretty severe. But what do we need to be looking for to know when to turn, this, turn that around? Or when well, that might turn around, I suppose? A very simple rule here that has worked very well in the past is simply to buy them if MSCI's index of emerging markets is above its 10-month moving average and to sell them if it's below. And such a rule might sound very simple, um, but it would have protected you from long bear markets in the past. And it would get get you into um, bull markets, not necessarily right at the bottom, but sufficiently near the bottom for you to, to, to make big profits. Okay, great. Um, and were there any other things that you uh, you found out with this portfolio? I think you, you made some comments about um, it wasn't that balanced. Was that is that to do with their emerging market exposure? Were there other issues? Um, I, yeah, I'm not happy with high emerging market exposure, um, and I, I think the portfolio is a bit light on boring ordinary defensive equities. You know, a lot of readers might be overweight in these because they've had such a good run. But, but, this, but this particular reader, I think, is, is underweight. So, yeah, it's not something you uh, we pick up normally in the portfolio clinic. Normally, as you said, it is the other way around. Thanks for that, Chris. And thank you for joining us. And uh, we'll speak to you again soon. Thank you. Um, so, Stuart, yeah, let's talk about your investment trust. The Edison Investment Trust, it was launched, is it May this year? Is That's that about right? right? Uh, um, people may know your name from strategic equity capital another investment trust which um runs a very similar strategy and you left that earlier this year just um so just for context um stuart's five-year record before up until he left in february this year 
Um, the share price total return was 146% versus 91 for the FTSE small cap and 48 for the FTSE all shares. So, you know, clearly you were doing something something right. Would it be fair to describe it as this concentrated small cap strategy? So it's about, it's about 15 to 20 stocks. Is that what you target? Uh, that's right. So um, we've pulled together an investment team of people who um, – Probably like um, many reads, we like to know a lot about a little rather than try and find out a little about a lot. And we have an investment process that's very, very focused and disciplined about the types of companies we would like to put in our portfolio. Um, We look at three specific things, um, value, quality, uh, and what we call engagement. Uh, On valuation side, looking for stocks that we uh, believe are a discount to their current value and that their value will grow over time. On quality, looking for companies that, frankly, we would be quite happy to own uh, as a private company for the next five or even ten years. So there's a quality threshold, so it's not just deep value, but quality. And final thing, engagement, looking for companies where they're good companies, that, but they could be better in some way. And um, uh, the, the obvious thing at the moment, you know, markets have, have done well for a protracted period. Um, the last downturn was, was many years ago. We like companies that today could be making more profit for their current level of sales. Um, we think that's a great, uh, great way to protect um, uh, protect your your money in the current environment. You know, if if your company can grow profits, even if sales don't grow for the next two or three years, that's a good good place to be. Um, and if the world continues to be good for the protracted period, they'll do even better. So we think it's uh, uh, so that's really where we focus. Where we don't focus on is on companies that are um, uh, trading all time high ratings making the peak profit margins they've ever made on the highest turnover because we think that's the quickest way you're going to lose money at this point in the cycle. Yep, that makes sense. Um, this, this, the style you talk about, and it, you mentioned it earlier, kind of it seems to chime more with private equity than it does with uh, traditional stock picking. What, was, that, was that a fair criteria to, ma- uh, that, to make? That, that's absolutely right. I spent the formative years of my career working in private equity ah, okay, um, sense, yeah. at a company called uh, HG Capital. Um, where my um, my deputy fund manager, uh, Ed Vilhofsky, also worked for many years and our, our chairman uh, in Armitage worked for, for a number of years. And back in 2000, I was tasked um, to go and uh, think about how a private equity house would adapt its own uh, investing uh, style into investing in public companies. It was something that interested me back then, um, and I thought I'd really like to do that one day, and I was very lucky to have the opportunity a few years later to, to, later to put it into practice. Um, so you're, you're absolutely right. And our, our theory is, is really buy the assets that we think private equity would like with those attributes. Either they perform very well as a quoted company, or at some point, if they remain undervalued, somebody else would quite like to own them as well. Yeah. So you effectively get this nice risk-adjusted return. It does mean that our portfolios are very, very different to other investors. We're not out and out growth. We're not out and out value. We're, we're a whole mixture of things in the middle. Okay. Um, I just want to talk about the, the actual setting up the trust and, and investing in what you've done now. Mm-hmm. So your, your target was to be 75% invested by January, I believe. Is that, is that the right? So January 20, next year. So. Um, so, yeah, so we've, on the steady state, you mentioned the number of portfolio companies. We'd anticipate when, uh, when we're mature, finding only five or six new investments a year. So it's been an interesting exercise to pull together a portfolio of, um, of 15 to 20 within the first nine months in what's been quite interesting markets. We're well on the way. We had our interim results out this morning. Um, and in the footnote 14, it, um, I think it states that we're around 60% invested with 12 investments. So I think we're, we're, we're going well. I think we're probably going to end up at a point probably slightly, Slightly less than uh, slightly slower pace. I mean, I'd anticipate maybe sixty-five percent invested by the year end. 
uh, and maybe a couple more investments. And I think the key for us is finding the right companies for the next three to five years. And it's far better to take our time and find those right companies rather than being feel rushed to deploy capital. And compared to when you started in May, are you... Because you seem to be, as I said, alluding to that you, things are going slower than you perhaps anticipated. Mm. But what I wanted to know was, is the reason for that because um, you're waiting for kind of better valuations based on the Brexit chat we had earlier? Or are you just not finding the right companies to suit your portfolio? I, th- I think that we're not people that market time. We don't try and second guess um, whether markets are going up or down in the short term. I think that's a, that's a fool's errand. <laughs> um, it's a bit like economic forecasting. Then you Indeed, yes. You're probably going to be wrong. Um, we have particular criteria of companies we look for. We've, we've met lots of companies um, over the years. We've met lots since we, since we started our journey last December, Ed and I. Um, and quite often we'll see a company and we think we really like that company, but the pricing isn't quite right. So we'll, we'll do the research and we'll put it on the shelf and wait. And we've had a couple of situations over the last... Um, you know, three or four months where we found companies we liked, but the price wasn't right. And then October happens and there's dislocation in markets. What we tend to find is when markets come under pressure, as they did in the second week in October, everything goes down. And you'll only find real liquidity opportunities uh, at the right price normally a week or two later. And, you know, we deployed a reasonable amount of capital in October. Um, I think the other factor is it's not just about finding the ideas, it's actually pushing the capital to work. One of the theses is behind why we wanted to launch our uh, launch the investment trust now, um, and also why a closed-ended fund works really well is really around liquidity. I mentioned though in the in the cast that um, much of the money in small companies in the UK is run in daily dealing open-ended funds, and that makes life very very difficult for a fund manager because um, technically you don't know how much money you're going to be running next week, so you always have to you know think about liquidity constraints in your portfolio. We're very lucky because as a closed-ended fund, we don't have to think about that. We have a fixed amount of capital. We know how much you know. We we know how much we're going to be managing every day, every week, and pretty much for the next year or so. And that means we can take the bet by investing in less liquid companies. Um, less liquid companies, we believe, over the long term, should generate you all things being equal, a better return because of that liquidity risk. Um, the challenge of that is sometimes you can find a, a great investment idea in a company you want at the right price, but it might take you three months to build your position. No, the, yeah, the, the biggest position in the portfolio, um, we decided on the 2nd of May, we'd like it to be a very big position in our portfolio. It took us three months to find the stock. And this is something that's quite different to, say, retail investors. If you wanted to go and buy five or ten thousand pounds worth of uh, shares in that company, it's quite easy. If you want to go and buy seven million pounds worth, without disturbing the price it can take a bit longer nope fair enough um in terms of say uh, kind of going back to your comment about the the number of open-ended managers in the space and i suppose again the amount of dry powder that's sitting in private equity is it is the market becoming quite pretty? private equity looking at the lower end of the list of space looking at companies they can take private and, and do stuff with is there are deals becoming that competitive where there's just too much money around? Well, I think um, pri- private equity has raised lots of capital over the last few years, as, as you've alluded to, um, and pricing is very high on private-to-private transactions. I think look, private equity has always looked at taking quoted companies private. Um, it's a more complex trans- transaction. Uh, they have less rep- representations of warranties to rely on, and it makes it more difficult to get lending. However, they tend to be less competitive if you if you go about the right assets in the right way um so there are a few houses that refocus on them um and i suspect those houses will be dusting off files on companies after in recent share price moves the interesting issue that we find is the extent to which institutional investors are prepared to have companies taken over when markets are very 
uh, buoyant and very positive as maybe they were in the summer, they, their expectations for takeout valuations might have been materially higher than they might be today. So I think that that dynamic will play through. I think the other factor is MIFID too. So we, you know, we've we've talked to a lot of our investors about this. MIFID two, we think, is leading to less liquidity in, in portfolio companies so and MIFID, more mispricing. So MIFID as well. two is, is regulations that came in uh, as in January, 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 January this year, yeah. um, and that so that kind of it made researching a bit harder. I won't go into the technicalities of it. I wrote far too much about this in a previous role, but yeah, basically reduce the number of kind of strategic researchers. At, brokerage houses that cover small caps i suppose is the best way to explain that i think that's right so for a for a quote of a manager what it means was prior to january the third you used to get access to whatever research you wanted and whatever access to analysts on the sell side post january the third you, you had to pay for it and justify why you were paying for it pricing collapsed in this market towards the end of last year and a lot of the houses ended up um uh, basically reducing their cost to the buy side because the buy side managers have decided to take it onto their own P&L. What that's led to is is a real um, business model challenge with the brokers and we believe that that's led to a decline in the number of research notes that's been put out and the quality and quantity uh, of, of, of the notes that are put out. Um, broadly, less news flow and less research means less information, less market chat. Then on top of that, a number of fund managers were concerned whether or not if a salesman called them up with an idea, they would get charged for it. So they're less willing to accept calls from equity salespeople and less willing to make calls to equity salespeople. So uh, we know a number of independent investor relations consultants, and they've they've been doing um, some work on this. Big fund, One big fund management group that they spoke to in Scotland measures their outgoing, their incoming calls with the sell side, and they said in September this year it was down 20% year on year and less market chat less ideas less reason to trade less liquidity yeah, that makes sense i suppose yeah less liquidity but then potentially better pricing more, more mispricing yeah i mean the thing that we found in our portfolio uh, of the summer was quite interesting you know we've, we've again we've we've, we've commented on our results our top three holdings in, in what was broadly a flat market our top three holdings peak to trough share price movement was 27 percent and these are pretty stable companies but yes that's that's, that's pretty big, big yeah <laughs> okay the miffy two thing is it's fascinating, despite being a very boring piece of legislation. But yeah, it's interesting to see that it's that GM and some notes of tangible evidence, I suppose, of the the less research coming through on share price movements. But, um, the other thing I wanted to ask you was, you mentioned again earlier, with this kind of private equity style that you, you bring to public markets, your interaction with management and holdings, how's, how do you go about this? I, I, I presume you don't want to be labelled an activist investor. <laughs> no, ab- absolutely. I think um, we are... You know, our, our mantra is to be a co-owner, an interested co-owner, and I think the first step of that is to try and understand any company we invest in better than any other shareholder. It's it's not always possible, but we do our best, and we're very fortunate not to have too many investments. We can really get to know the business as well, understand what makes the businesses tick, and then have a a really good engaged debate with uh, with the people uh, uh, with the people around the business, be it the management team, the board, and other stakeholders, if appropriate. So this comes back to our mantra: find a good business buy a good business sell an excellent business we like to take companies you know to go with companies along a journey of self-improvement because we think at the end of that it's going to be more valuable business than when we start okay so how do you in terms how do you turn that with an exit strategy so what's your i suppose you have a, a time period but then would you sell at that time period arrived or would you wait until you made sure you'd got made the changes to the business that you wanted to make when you went in yeah so uh, look it's it's a bit of a boring a boring answer but a lot of it's about numbers and maths so we have a particular way we think about making our target returns um 
And if at the end of three years a company has changed um, and has improved itself, but actually it's still it's a great prospect compared with what we own the rest of the portfolio, because that's what we always do. We, we don't compare against the market, we compare against what we already own. If it looks good for another three years, you know, why wouldn't we continue to be an investor? And some of the most successful transformational story, um, stories I've invested in over the past we went into what was originally we thought a uh, you know, two or three uh, turnaround improvement, and then we found out after two or three years the business was probably better than we thought, and uh, we stuck in in one case for another five years, and having doubled our money initially, we went and made another three times. Nope, so you know, <laughs> good good stories can get better. No, absolutely they can. Okay, great. No, thank you for that. Stuart. That was really interesting. Um, that brings us to the end of the show this week. But um, please do head to the website and pick a copy of this week's magazine uh, for more on uh, everything that Chris has talked about in terms of the economic side. Uh, there's also a feature on P2P Investment Trust, which is quite interesting, uh, and some news about impact investing and what that actually means. Uh, thank you for listening and have a good weekend.